Good morning, and thanks for joining us on the another cloudy day. Uh, temperature is going to be nice for a January in Toronto, uh, one degree. Uh, right now it's minus one. I'm Anna Bailao, in today for Maggie John for the next couple of segments. I'm so excited to get to know more about Danielle Russell. Danielle is a not-for-profit industry leader, which I'm very curious what that means, and we'll find all about it. She's a consultant, a speaker, and an author. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, and like I said, tell us what is a not-for-profit industry leader. Morning, Anna. That's a good question. <laughs> I think... Um, you know, it can mean a lot of things. So it's it's fair to be asking that. I've worked in the not-for-profit sector for about 15 years. I've held a range of leadership positions serving all sorts of organizations and causes. And I also sit on the board of directors of the Canadian, uh, Canadian Society of Association Executives. And so um, that really sort of places me at the epicenter of one of the sort of collectives or umbrella groups of the not-for-profit sector. And I think that's kind of very much where that piece is coming from. I think also as somebody who, who does some consulting and, and has taught at a college and done a, a whole bunch of different things, it's sort of the, the term that got settled on because I didn't have sort of that, you know, executive director or CEO title that would help people really understand in an instant what it was I was doing or what perspective I was bringing to my work. Great. Uh, Danielle, I was um, very well aware of the work that nonprofits um, do in our city. Um, but during the pandemic, it was um, incredible how they came together and they assisted governments to support the residents. I mean, over 200 nonprofit organizations were organized and work with the city to support the residents directly. Uh, they play such a crucial role in our city, but they face many challenges as well. Do, do you want to tell us a little bit some of, of the challenges the sector is is facing right now and, and why we should be so concerned and supportive at the same time of this sector? One of the things that happened during the uh, pandemic was a lot of organizations sort of got their day in in the sun to and that's a really good thing. One of the challenges though is that I think a lot of people have a very specific idea when you say nonprofit. So I think the second we started talking about them, most listeners probably have one or two charities or one or two organizations in mind and one of the big challenges, I think, in the sector, because there are so many passionate people doing work on specific and important causes, the shoemakers' children don't really have shoes, right? So there are some uh, industry umbrella groups, groups like the Maytree Foundation or the Ontario Not-for-Profit Network, but they're not really well understood outside of the sector. And so one of the things that I really hope people sort of take away from this is that the sector is broader than any one piece of it. And, you know, one of the challenges that we saw during the pandemic was, yes, lots of great organizations from large organizations to grassroots organizations stepped up to address challenges and 
a lot of those organizations, including one I was working with at the time, did so partially by dipping into strategic reserves, which is what the reserves are there for. But I think as we go into this difficult economic time, it's really important for us to kind of be aware of the fact that some of these organizations are going in with already depleted sort of financial resources. So is 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 there is there um, an issue that you think that we need to uh, address in terms of funding for the nonprofits, both with private donations and with government uh, subsidies? It's definitely an issue. I think there's also, you know, I kind of think of this as more the idea that there was an emergency two years ago. And so I think a lot of people very generously donated. Um, I know personally, I really shifted the way I was making donations. So very much to organizations like food banks and shelters and people who were providing the sort of emergency services. And as things get tighter, I think one of the things regardless of some of the data we saw late last year from Imagine Canada that people intended to continue to donate, it's a really challenging time for people. And so I I think that sometimes people don't think about the not-for-profit sector holistically. And so that's one of the things I hope people will really sort of think about as they think about their budgets during these difficult times is there's still an opportunity to to give and to give to a wide range of organizations. Um, I know that um, by talking with a lot of nonprofits, one of their challenges as well is, like many other sectors, is um, also finding people. A lot of them yeah. are mm-hmm. uh, having a hard time finding people to be to work in the organizations. I mean, these are professional organizations. They have professionals mm. working in them as well. Sometimes people think that it's all these things are run just by volunteers. I mean, they're not. They're they're you know some of these organizations are quite large. They do amazing work in our city, and and they also um, are facing some challenges in 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 getting some of these workers. Um, what do you think? Can you talk a little bit about those challenges and what do you think we can do to improve that situation? Uh, I think there there's a couple of pieces there. One is just one of the challenges that we've seen through uh, prior to the pandemic even is that people don't really understand that there's a whole sort of engine behind the not-for-profit sector. It's one of the largest employers in Canada. It contributes uh, huge amounts of money to the, the Canadian economy. But people really, and I don't blame anybody for this perspective, But a lot of people really are sort of like, I just want my dollars to go directly to the cause. And they don't really think about the fact that sometimes the person who's actually delivering that service or making sure you get a charitable receipt um, are the same people whose salaries are paid out of that like administrative or overhead line. And so I think the first and most important piece there is to think about the sector, not just for the incredible impact it makes on society, which it does, but also as a large employer. And to really, I would challenge people to think more broadly about their donations and the way they donate. Um, Because I think, you know, we see in, particularly in Toronto and large centers, people who work for charities and not-for-profits actually making salaries that put them very close, if not below the poverty line. 
And it it's sort of, there's a cognitive dissonance there, right? To have a charity that's fighting poverty that's not able to pay more than poverty wages to its staff. So I think the first thing is really about um, seeing it as an employment sector and not just for the, the incredible missions and work that they're doing. The second piece, because you really did touch on it, is a lot of these organizations are they rely on their volunteers. And as fewer and fewer people uh, are able to volunteer in certain ways, it puts more and more pressure on the staff. Are, are we and seeing a decrease in, in volunteers uh, in, in our city? Do, do you have any idea, Danielle? I, I have a sense I that people that are volunteering of, less, but is, is that a fact? I, I, anecdotally. So I don't have uh, stats to back that up, but I do... I'm definitely hearing about it. And I'm also hearing about it from people who are trying to volunteer and are really trying to figure out where they fit, um, particularly people who may have, um, you know, existing health challenges where they're concerned about going back into uh, the spaces where they might have traditionally volunteered. And so I think my other piece is really just that call out to people who are looking for a way to make an impact. It's not necessarily in the way you previously did, but, you know, I know people who are really smart with money who would probably be fantastic treasurers. Um, and I'm not taking away from the uh, sort of what they get uh, emotionally from, you know, sorting food as an example, but I want people to think about, uh, that piece more broadly as well, because if we can take some of that pressure off those staffs, then I think it'll make it easier for these organizations to recruit good people. I'm thrilled to have with us uh, Danielle Russell. Uh, she's still with us. We've been talking about the nonprofit industry because she is a nonprofit industry leader. Uh, so, Danielle, we were talking about the importance of volunteers, the importance of donations for um, the nonprofit sector. If you were to advise a nonprofit organization um, right now, give us a sneak peek. I know that, you know, you can spell your beans right here on the show, but like, what is your biggest advice to the nonprofit sector right now? There is such a range of them and such a range of organizations, but I think my biggest advice right now is to focus on your mission and to really get granular about what you can and cannot do with the resources you have available to you. And as much as possible, focus on value delivery around that specific mission. Because, you know, the one of the things we talk about a lot in the not-for-profit sector, particularly with volunteers, is there's lots of good ideas and not enough resources. And this is really a time where don't discount the good ideas that are truly good ideas, but also this is not really a time to sort of go off on an adventure that isn't really deeply tied to your mission. Do you think that people in Toronto understand the impact and value of the nonprofit? Like I remember that when we used to talk about shelters, uh, a lot of people in Toronto don't realize that most of our shelters in Toronto are operated by nonprofit organizations, right? And and people think it's just they're all operated by the city, and most of them are nonprofits organizations. Do you think that people have uh, any idea of how much impact nonprofits have in our city? No, I don't think that people have 
enough sort of broad understanding of nonprofits and and how widely spread they are across not just the city but society as a whole and I think one of the big things Anna that we've kind of danced around a little bit we saw it a little bit during the pandemic but um, it's still going on is we're seeing a lot of systemic challenges inside the city right around mental health around homelessness around you know poverty and I don't think enough people really have drawn the mental line between the health of a lot of these nonprofits in terms of their financial health and what the the sort of um, multiplier impact would be if these nonprofits start to fail because we're, there's already a shortage of supports. And I know there is an organization in the city that's reasonably well-known. I'm, I'm not going to name them on the radio, obviously, um, that is shutting down their operations, that's looking for a new home for their programming, which they recognize is still very important, but they can't support it anymore. Um, and I think about, you know, what's the downstream impact of that program not existing for the vulnerable population that it serves. And so I, I would say it's not just thinking about where those nonprofits exist, but what happens if more of them fail now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, then, and therefore the importance of all of us pressuring, you know, our governments to continue to support uh, these organizations, to volunteer, to donate and think of it in different ways is extremely important. Uh, Danielle, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on some of um, the stories that we've been hearing, and I would love to talk to you about healthcare. It's been a massive story this week, and uh, I actually yeah. wanted to play a little clip that we had in one of our other shows uh, for you today. When you go into hospital to have surgery, yes, there are things that you will have to consider. Um, you know, knee braces are not included in, in publicly funded health care. That is an insurance issue. But to go in and to find out that you can have this knee replacement or the alternative device, that's the problem that's very problematic in the private system because I might get a better knee than you. I might get a better hip than you. Because I can afford to pay for that extra fee. That is, I'm not going to lie, that is that slippery slope that I get that why there's criticism for. But if I'm a young parent and I'm, you know, decently well off and I say, hmm, do I, or I'm about to be a young parent, I say, do I want my wife to have a private room or do I want her sharing a room with somebody else? I want the best for her. I want the best for my future son or daughter. So if I can pay, I will, won't I? Well, I guess that depends on the benefit of uh, what insurance you have, too, right? Sure. So, I mean, that that's a little bit outside of the box. Sure, there's that extra pay. But we're talking about the basics. You know, you go in for surgery to find out that there's other options. And you do want the best for you. But I might not be able to afford it, but I'm going to go out on a limb and pop my credit card out and say, give me that extra So what are your thoughts about this whole conversation that we've been having uh, this last week uh, everywhere? I think everywhere everybody's talking about um, the, the changes to the healthcare. How do you feel about this? I think as I was listening to that clip, one of the things that really struck me was uh, the, the lady who was speaking was kept saying insurance. And I think that that is part of the challenge here is the perspective that we bring 
to the issue. So I was thinking there, you know, we live in what people are now terming the gig economy. There are fewer and fewer people who have those benefits paid by their employer. And I know a lot of people who have choose to pay out of pocket for certain things instead of to pay monthly. And so I think that there may also be a lot of people, maybe people I don't even know, who can't even afford to pay those premiums. And so before we even kind of look at this, I think it's really important to think about this across the entire society, because I've always sort of applied this equality of opportunity kind of lens to how I kind of look at social issues. And one of the things I've found really challenging about this issue is I don't really want to be a hypocrite, but at the same time, you know, I know that I've paid that registration fee to go to the private clinic to get, you know, a colonoscopy because my grandmother died of colon cancer and I'm not waiting two years for the free one. Right. And so I think this is a real, I'm, I'm finding this very personally challenging to sort out my own bias and my true perspective on the issue. It is a difficult situation, right? If you see, especially, for, you just gave a great example, Danielle, when you experience it yourself or the ones that are really close to you and you have a very difficult situation, that you do anything and everything to get that support for your family, to get that those those tests done. You know, how many people sometimes without the opportunity, you know, end up traveling to the States to get a test done quickly or a surgery done quickly. Um, I think the, the question that we're all grappling with is, well, we all believe that we have a system, rightly or wrongly, that gives that opportunity to everybody. What we're finding is that a lot of people don't think that's the case right now. It's just a perception. But how do we continue to work with a system that we believe should be giving that opportunity to 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 everybody. And um, I, I heard a, a lot of people in the government saying, we're not going to make people pay with credit card. This already exists. There's there's private uh, clinics all over. You know, you do blood tests in private clinics. Do- doctors are private clin- cl- clinicians. Um, I, I think the devil is in the details, but I think the core principle of that core the access the same access to everybody is i think we should be what should be driving this and i think that's that's what you you said that it's it, it's a difficult conversation but i think if we start from some core values and principles um i think that's what people want correct so challenges I'm, sorry go ahead go ahead i was gonna say i think one of the challenges too is that Everybody's also approaching, I think, they're, how they're hearing this message very differently, right? So everything the government's saying, I think, makes some logical sense on some level. But I think, you know, one of the challenges I personally have is whether or not I sort of agree with the government philosophically. There's been a couple examples of sort of uh, philosophy overtaking maybe thinking about long-term consequences. And yeah, so absolutely. I think maybe that's one of the challenges people are hearing is, do we actually believe that you believe that? And <laughs> that that's true. really challenging, that right? That is true. That is politics. That is politics. Danielle, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for uh, sharing your experience on the nonprofit uh, sector. It's uh, extremely important. And uh, thank you for your thoughts on on this issue. Um, I'm Anna Bailao. You're listening right. to Toronto This Weekend on 640 Toronto.